competitive 40k network presents art of war art of war strategy and tactics discussions with the best players on the planet on the planet with your host paul murphy and expert coach nick nanavati Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Art of War podcast. I am joined today by one of the most successful Warhammer players to have ever walked the down under, Liam Hackett. Liam, how are you? <laughs> really good for this early in the morning, Nick. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate you making the time. Not everyone wakes up at 7 a.m. and just starts spewing Warhammer knowledge, but that is what makes you such an amazing player. I do it in my sleep. <laughs> Literally. Well, that's actually what we're going to be unpacking today. In the first part of this episode, we're going to go through Liam's mindset, his approach to the game, his philosophy about the game, and just generally how he approaches the game. For those of you who may not be aware of who Liam even is, you got to get up from under the rock that which you live and understand that Liam was on the Team Australia, the world team that won the World Team Championships. He just recently won the largest te- um, singles event in Australia, the Adelaide Uprising. He played on not one, not two, but seven teams across the last year at team events, winning all seven of them. That is quite a record, if I might say so. And he's been a consistently top performer for many, many years. I know back in the day, me and Liam uh, had it out and... Uh, he got the better of me. So, Liam, you've had a really impressive resume. How are you feeling right now? <laughs> feeling pretty buttered up, to be perfectly honest. No, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be on and ha- have a chat about it. You know, I'm working on my hyping up people. And I think, I think you know, you do a lot of the job for me. So I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, this is part one of a two-part conversation. In this show, like I said, we're going to go through Liam's mindset and what makes him such a successful competitor at Warhammer 40K. And then in part two, we're actually going to take a look at the first ever Arcs of Omens list that has won a huge tournament in the 2023 New Arcs meta. Uh, Liam just took down the Adelaide Uprising tournament, uh, which had, what, over 200 players at it? Something like that? Yeah, I think they had signed up about um, 250 players. Of course, it always drops at events, so I can't remember the exact number of people who who ended up coming. Yeah, well, over 200-ish people, and to do it, to bring the whole thing down undefeated with Solar Watch Adeptus Custodes, totally different type of build from what we've seen successful here in America. I'm super excited to pack it. So that's going to be for subscribers. You can join the fun on AOW40K.com. That's our Patreon. Five bucks a month gets you access to all the different part twos. You also get Blake's show. He does an amazing job with Unbroken. So much value, and it helps support the channel. Check it out. All right, Liam, let's get into it. You ready? <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. Born ready. So I want to know about you as a player. I know your recent accolades, which I just kind of went through, but like, when did you get started? How did you get into Warhammer and what has brought you, what has your journey been to get you to where you are? Well, so um, I've been playing 40K probably pretty casually since about 2013. I was in my first year of uni um, with like college here in Australia. Uh, It was the first time in my life where I had any amount of money that could even afford (laughs) 40K models. This is not a cheap hobby. I think we can all agree on that one. Um, And so I started playing pretty casually there at my local games workshop. And a few of the guys that I still play games with today are people that I met through that. But I didn't actually start playing by anything you would even call a mild semblance of competitiveness before about 2017 or 2018. 
Um, what happened was uh, I was not even really aware of an event called the ATC, which is the Australian Team Champs. Um, similar concept to the American ATC, except ours is like state by state based. And it's um, for a while there, it was really like the the, the premium event, the creme de la creme, uh, what people wanted to play for. Now, if you've ever been to Australia, you know that the two halves of our very tiny country are about a seven-hour flight apart. And uh, this particular year, uh, my state team of Queensland um, was actually kind of struggling in some ways to get eight people to go across to Perth, which is about as far away as two points in Australia can possibly get, mainly because it costs 700 Australian dollars to fly across the country. So it's not exactly cheap to go for like a little two-day event. Anyway, um, the team captain at the time, uh, Simon, uh, who was on Team Australia, uh, in the last year, uh, Simon G, he invited me to come be part of the the state team, Team Queensland. And that was my first team event that was, you know, even mildly serious. Uh, and after that, I got fully addicted to like bigger and better 40K tournaments. I just wanted to go to more of them. I wanted to see what they were like. Uh, and then after that, I got 110% hooked. I just wanted to play more events. I wanted to do better. I got involved in play like with players like Eric and Hayden Walduck and really sort of learned how to play better. Got my teeth kicked in time and time again. Um, but I just wanted to go that experience going to Perth was really what made me want more and more of, of that kind of thing. That's quite the the jump straight into the deep end, you know, like never really getting into competitive 40K um, and then all of a sudden getting on a plane, flying across the country uh, to play on a, a big competitive team. I mean, that that's zero to 100 for a lot of people. How, how did you feel about just making that jump in the first place? I was I was really really nervous to be honest um very very nervous because I'd played a couple of like four or five man teams events there were some events locally called like um the Titans team events and then there was uh the Lord of War events and a, a, few, a few other things that were local for me but some of those were like 30 35 player RTTs um or even the games workshop local events which I, I can't speak internationally but the games workshop events locally to me are much more narrative focused a much more um hobby element focused rather than like competitive battle scores um so for me it probably was a zero to a hundred jump but also i was really reassured because for me anyway uh i had some some friends of mine who uh you know have been some of my decade-long friends at this point um you know brian lakeland uh, lachlan carter uh denith lianagama who were all on that same team with me in perth it was kind of actually many of our first forays into competitive 40k a lot of us dipped our toe into the water with that one yeah that's really exciting i mean i think a lot of players who maybe listen to this podcast or just follow competitive 40k definitely have that bit of cold feet going into a big event you know yeah, for sure. so like they hear all kinds of things on the internet how everyone's uh, out to get you and there's all kinds of gotcha players <laughs> and winning all cost guys and it's a really can't be further from the truth in my experience and to see that you jumped zero to a hundred and just had an amazing experience and now not only fallen in love with the hobby and started competing more but like really excelled at it is just super inspiring well i mean one of the, the things about this kind of experience is that at the end of the day i think people have very little to lose right like i mean with competitive 40k and even huge enormous tournaments the only thing you have to lose is games. Just by showing up at the experience, you meet new people, you talk to new people, you get to see what the scene can be. And so, you know, I've also spoken to people before who are like, I don't want to go to a tournament because like, I don't think I'm going to do well. Or for example, I don't want to go to a tournament because I don't think I'm going to like the players there. But my encouragement will always be to dip your toe in the water or even just dive straight in. Because the reality is that I think people have nothing to, nothing but things to gain, really. You know, 
especially at an event for argument's sake like LVO. You're meeting close to a thousand people overall. You can meet not just big names in the game, but also people who are in the same boat as you. I, I would always encourage people to go to big 40k tournaments, even if you're the most casual player around, because for every experience that you have, somebody else is going to mirror that experience. You're going to find like-minded people and tournaments are where all the nerds converge. Let's be real. That's absolutely true. I mean, most of my social network at this point has come through meeting people at tournaments. And I don't just mean my 40k social network, like I've gotten all kinds of real life external friendships and help in various areas of my life through 40k connections it's like a great equalizer amongst people because we all have it in common yeah it's, i mean like you know in some ways um you know perhaps this is an unpopular opinion but i i'd even put like the wtc for the australians in a similar boat um obviously it's way more serious and it's way more expensive and it's much more selective but the people who i've been to serbia and belgium with are people who i probably wouldn't have much exposure to in my everyday life like we're all from very very different walks of life we've got We've got accountants, we've got engineers, we've got dentists, we've got you know people who work at banks, we've got tradies, we've got all sorts of different like, people from different careers and upbringings. But then you know we all traveled 33 hours on Singapore Airlines and then sweat to death in the Belgium heat together, and that's kind of a, a, a binding experience. Really I think is. even if you're going to a singles, if you're going to a singles event, man, would I encourage the people listening to this to organize a group, put out a put out a call if you have to. I mean, for, for Uprising Adelaide, which I'm, we'll talk about a little bit more later, um, we had a group of 15 Brisbaneites, uh, Brisbane's the city that I live in. We had 15 people travel together and stay in two Airbnbs that I organized that were about like uh, less than a kilometer apart. So you could walk between them. So, you know, already, even though it's a singles event, we were like a team, like a squad of 15 people traveling together. Leveling with you, I think 40K events can be the ultimate away weekend. <laughs> they really can be if you organize them right. No, for real. I've, I've done 40K events as like four or five dudes hanging out in a hotel room for the weekend. That's super fun. The Airbnb life is super fun. Uh, it can, it can really just be a real wholesome bonding experience between you and some people. Yeah. For sure. Over some toy soldiers. Because why not? <laughs> Speaking of toy soldiers, I mean, you've been killing it all season, all year, for years. Like, I remember we played our game. You were running Oryx. This was back in 8th edition, and I was running GSC. You had a very offbeat compared to what was typical at the time, Orc list. And then you were one of the first players in this edition that was really killing it with Thousand Sons. All of a sudden, you showed up to WTC this year with Necrons and brought home the, the World Singles Championship, and as well as, I believe, the highest score in the teams. Is that right? Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. So not, not much on the underperformance here. And now you've come full circle, I guess. Like, I don't even know if this is a circle. You're just going in a, in a rotation all the way on to Custodes. There's a lot to unpack with that. You have clearly <laughs> mastery of multiple different factions uh, and an understanding of the game that allows you to really see between the lines and come up with some offbeat lists that really strike home. I want to really unpack how exactly it is that you do that. So what is your methodology with even selecting armies in your play style with the game? So for me, anyway, I've long ago accepted that the the defensive playstyle, what I would call defensive playstyle anyway, is is not for me. I'm a, a very aggressive uh, 40k player. I like taking the table. Um, and probably the the part of 40k that I like the most is combat tricks. So you know, using pile and consolidate to get extra movement. Um, using pile and consolidate to try point models so they can't fall back. Um, tagging shooting units objectives and things like that that part of the game is the part that i think i excel at the most so um really i think i'm much better tactical minutiae part of the game yeah i i think the that part of the game i, I get a lot of 
um, satisfaction out of knowing that I've done it effectively. And so, to be honest, if you actually look at the lists that I've played um, very consistently, you'll notice that they're all armies that I think lean into that to the the tenth degree. Um, you know, for example, you can use my Thousand Sons. Um, I played with uh, thirty occult terminators, and then I played with like fifty Rubik Marines. And the point of both those lists was not psychic or shooting. The point of them was to use temporal surge, tag units, respawn models with cult of time, tag units. Um, now sort of like over and over and over again, was I just tagging units? Even for example, at the Australian ATC, I took like 40 Rubik Marines and um, 10 spawn and it was cult of mutation, uh, not cult of duplicity, which is the standard one. And I took cult of mutation because it has a half movement spell. And even though um, and I, basically the whole point of that army was if I play shooting armies, I'm going to halve their movement and then I'm going to wrap them with Rubik Marines. And it might be, actually more often than not, it was impossible for them to fall back. Like one of the things that I enjoy very, very much is uh, when you play for example, a Tau player and a Devilfish can move, t- move 12 and you wrap them with 10 Chaos Spawn and you don't kill them and you half their movement so they move 6 and because of the footprint of the model, they can't jump you in so they can't fall back even though it's a vehicle and even though it's a Devilfish. Sure, they can use Desperate Breakout, but the point is that's the stuff that I love leaning into and looking at my other armies, um, be it the Custodes, uh, be it the Necrons, be it the Orcs, all of them are lists where you're fast you advance and charge, you have pile-in tricks, you can stop fallback. Um, they're all in a similar... Despite the fact they're wildly different-looking armies, I will play them largely pretty similarly, to be honest. I, like, I, I know what I enjoy, I know what I'm good at, and that's the part of the game that I like. I like... If you, if you wanted to write a list that is built to shut down other shooting armies, I've probably got it in Battlescribe. <laughs> that's so awesome. I struggle with the shooting armies sometimes, especially... Uh, here on the American terrain, where sometimes on player placing can get br- really brutal. So I'm definitely going to take a Yeah, 100%. Book. Yeah. Um, I think it's really cool, your approach to the game, like genuinely, especially because you don't look at it like necessarily what an army's strengths or weaknesses are on the, the face surface level. Like Thousand Suns, everybody will tell you that they're good at psychic powers. They're primarily a shooting army. They're space marines, so of course they're combat capable, but no one's striking them as a combat army. And then you start using your Thousand Suns to temporal surge up the field, trap people in combat, just really be obnoxious. Um, I can definitely see how this gets you an advantage against other shooting armies because they expect you to play one way and then all of a sudden you're charging them and it's like, what? what, what (laughs) Yeah. Um, But do you find that by taking unorthodox armies like Thousand Sons and using them as a combat army in a way, do you find that like, let's say you play against Blood Angels or some actual combat army that you're just leaning into their strategy and it's just really skewing your matchup? Is this where teams comes in? Yeah. So like, obviously um, both of the things you said are correct. So obviously that is where teams come in. Um, But the second thing I guess is that you obviously have to improvise, adapt and overcome. Uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to verse a Blood Angel player and, you know, dive 10 occult terminators right into those Death Company hammers um, and let Damn, them use me like a sock puppet. sauce I was missing. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, I'm, I'm obviously not going to um, do that. But the the way, like, my play style kind of works is that the point isn't so much to, like, tag and shut down shooting. The point is to make movement the most important part of the game. And so, like, for example, invariably, I don't play slow armies. I, I, I just can't do it. I'll often play an army that is perceived of as slow. But if you 
squeeze every ounce of juice out of it it's not slow and you know i think the thousand suns are in that category i think the solar watch is definitely in that category um i think uh even some of my necron builds are in that category and so um against melee armies um it's the same plan the same core concept is i'm just gonna not let people use their armies against shooting armies that involves wrapping and tagging units and just being an annoying spot but against melee armies it's physically blocking them literally just running away and being on different objectives and picking secondaries that mean you can just abandon your home field and just move around them prime example of that was um uh the england round at wtc where i played uh josh who was on blood angels with my necrons uh and you know sang guard with armor of contempt and not a very good time for like ne the necron list that i brought to wtc it really didn't have as much of a melee punch as perhaps it needed um and i literally just ran away um I just ran away and moved on to different objectives and let him have his objectives because I'm like one inch faster than him. So all you have to do is just move away. Uh, and that's kind of the, the general game plan. Just my lists over the years have always been making sure movement is the thing that I'm the best at. I love that approach. I mean, if you've heard any of the content that I produce over the years, it's literally said movement is what wins and loses games. So seeing that just exaggerated in your list writing is, is amazing you kind of lost me though i'm not gonna lie when you said you're you just run away as your tactic versus combat armies i get that as a mechanism to survive but eventually there's a board edge and forget the board edge there's objectives and if you're not playing for those objectives how are you actually winning this game <laughs> well so when i say running away what i'm kind of meaning is not fighting on all fronts all at once so if you're playing you know i think my my game against um josh on blood angels is a good example of this so kind of i guess to give like a really cliff notes version of how that game went we were playing mission one three um who i'm still i'm still going to call it vital intelligence i literally cannot stop calling it vital intelligence it's like a I, I, gw literally did not change the mission at all and just gave it a new name and i'm like god damn it anyway um so in that mission for example um i think uh, i ended up going first which is okay against blood angels all i did was i, I moved a single scarab and just touched the edge of the two objectives on the far corners of the table he then obviously has to retaliate otherwise i'm getting primary and he goes in one direction when he goes in one direction, I'm not going to commit, obviously, my whole army to retaliate. I'm going to try and use my shooting elements. And then I once I use my shooting elements, there's now like a kill zone in between the Blood Angel army and mine. He has to dive me, but he can't dive me all at once in one location because then I'm still going to get a primary lead over the rest of the game. And because of the way the, ne the Necron secondaries worked, he has to try and kill me. But if he, as soon as he splits his army, I'm going to ignore one half of it and fight one half of it at a time. Because Blood Angels at the time are, was suspiciously durable for Necrons to kill because of Armor of Contempt, I run away from him on one side of the table. I just leave him alone. I move and advance the Wraith and the Scarabs and just get out of the way. And on the other side of the table, I'll doggy pile him with literally everything else that I have. My shooting elements, the Silent King, the Scarabs, the Wraiths, and give him as little value as possible out of the units that he's got. And it's frustrating because it kind of feels like you're doing, you know, the, the Gates of Thermopylae just over and over again, where you're just fighting a single unit, a single or two units at a time. But it's guaranteeing that the melee army can't make the most out of what it wants, which is the fight phase. So all I'm really doing by moving away is I might be surrendering some primary points, but I'm saving two, three units because you can only interrupt once. You can really only be in one location at once with an army like my Necron army, where the king can make things fight last, but he, he he's a one-trick pony. He, can, he can't be everywhere. And that's the same strategy I have to the these new Dark Angel armies that are coming out with the 
jolly 40 to 50 Terminators. Um, same plan I have against Sisters of Battle, where I'm never going to probably bring a list to a tournament that can just muscle through 100% of a dedicated melee army. So pick your battles, move and be in the right spot. I love it. Really is an emphasis on movement and just overall getting value out of what you have to play with instead of trying to fo- make it a list battle, you're making it a tactical battle, which absolutely Yeah, awesome. 100%. 100%. Mm. So you said one of the first things, and I, I really liked how you broke this down, was that you enjoy playing 40k at that micro combat tactical level. You like to play aggressive. You know defensive 40k play isn't for you. And that's an amazing answer to the question, what is your play style? I actually just was talking to some someone who messaged me Uh, over the internet and they were like nick can you help me pick an army for the new season i'm trying to get back into the game i want to obviously do well pick an army that does well and i I, that's not how it works like really you have to tell me or at least identify with yourself how do you want to play 40k what what do you want to do in this game because there's so much creative freedom for how you approach it if you pick something that jives with you you'll do really well and if you pick something that doesn't because the internet told you to you likely won't do very well (laughs) So what was the process for you as a player discovering your play style and how you like to play the game? That's, yeah, that's really, really fair. Um, yeah, that, that's a harder question. I think um, it's, it was more so exposure to the other side. I, I guess like exposure to people who play the game drastically different to me who made me realize how like, I like to play the game. And um, the, the person who I think is the best example of that is Eric. Um, Eric Latheris, um, who I think is one of the best 40k players I've ever versed, um, has very consistently gravitated towards hyper-defensive armies. And even if they don't look like defensive armies, um, Eric's playstyle is always about um, probably doing the minimum to cause the maximum. Like he, He's always very much about securing those wins in hard games. He can obviously push in a team's format to get those big wins that he needs, but He's always been that kind of master of defensive play, being the anvil, um, so to speak. And we've played probably at this point dozens, if not you know, close to 100 games over the last couple of years, Eric and I. And by playing him, I kind of worked out, okay, um, when, I'm, when I'm seeing how he's playing, I would much rather be doing X, or I think I would do better if I was doing X, or probably worse, I don't think I can do what he's doing <laughs> to the standard that's needed to make it work. I also found that from lists that I took to events, it's interesting. I think you kind of learn your own playstyle if you write a list for like five different factions. And if you notice that every single one of them has like a big mealy brick in it, or every single one of them has like double move or stop fallback, then you're probably gravitating towards like aggressive mealy factions anyway sort of subconsciously but if you build an army that is like redundant for example that has three units of zephyr and three units of repentia three units of uh, the neophytes or whatever they're called then you're probably already gravitating towards a more msu style melee army if that's kind of just what you're doing with a number of different factions um so yeah i can't really answer your question succinctly i, I don't know at what point i knew that that was how i build armies but it was more just like um a bit of bit of trial and error a bit of time and consistently it's what came out of my brain i think trial and error is a lot of the truth to it i know for me personally i i just played a lot of lists that i thought were good i just grew as a 40k player trying stuff experiencing stuff playing against players who had their own strategies and whatnot and over time i think I, i found one that worked for me i also fall in that more defensive category i say I would say I really love fast things. I really love moving. So I try to emphasize those. 
Um, I don't like taking hits. I don't like getting killed. So I try to minimize that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I don't feel the need to go table my opponent to win the game. So like, think about, I guess, and this is more speaking to the audience here, I, I guess think about how it is on a conceptual level, not a rules level. How would you like to play 40K? What makes you happy? What makes you sad? And emphasize and de-emphasize those elements. It's just a decent way of looking at it. Yeah, very, very much. And, you know, I think that when I say aggressive 40K style, I don't mean that I want to try and table my opponent to win games. Um, I'd describe aggressive and defensive as dictating the flow of the game or trying to disrupt the flow of the game. So I think an aggressive player is going to try and force the opponent to make mistakes and then capitalize on those mistakes. Whereas I'd say a question on this, Liam, this is a topic that I I love getting into as a defensive player. And since you're an aggressive player, I think this will be really interesting. (laughs) The, I think a stereotypical assumption when someone says aggressive play is someone who like pushes all their pieces to the middle of the board and just tries to run at their opponent with guns or combat or whatever their list is trying to do and just table their opponent maximum damage, maximum damage. And right off the bat, you're saying that's not what it is. Could you unpack that? Yeah, 100%. So um, I, I fundamentally disagree that that's like aggressive 40K player um, because what that play style is is that's playing list 40k. So an aggressive playstyle doesn't necessarily mean aggressive list building. It's about how you approach the game. So for example, for me, I know we'll talk about a little more, little bit more later on, but um, if I'm playing uh, like my custody army, the aggressive playstyle would be, how I would describe it anyway, would be me doing something, like regardless of what my opponent does, I have a particular plan, what I, how I think I'm going to approach this. And my plan will be to force them to make bad decisions. And the reason why I think that's aggressive is you, you're making people do things they don't want to do, which is how you win games. So for example, the first half of your example, Nick, is 100% true. Like, you know, funnily enough, you don't have to be a tactical genius to work out that, you know, 20 custody wardens are probably going to run into a central ruin and sit there and posture. But most of the time, in fact, almost all of my games, that's where they stayed. They probably don't go much beyond the middle of the table because all you need to do on you know the 80% of the missions at the moment is hold the majority of the objectives to achieve your secondaries. So I'm going to move into the middle of the table and I'm going to sit there and then melee armies don't really want to dive you because if they dive you, you then leapfrog off them, you get extra movement with the advance and charge and you steal their home field. Shooting armies don't want to come within a country mile of where you are because you're going to wrap them and you're going to stop them falling back and you're going to do all sorts of shenanigans with the karate stances. So my aggressive playstyle is going to a location on the table or doing something with my models, like wrapping or charging, et cetera, that's going to make them make a decision that's going to make the game even worse for them. Whereas the flip side, I think, is a defensive playstyle, in my opinion anyway, is a playstyle that is going to try and act and score points and do things regardless of the opponent to make it really hard to interact with, to make it so that the opponent can't shut down what you're trying to do. That's why I think it gravitates to armies that um, have a lot more freedom to interact with the opponent. I think that's a beautiful answer. So that wasn't where I was going with it, but I think you you brought us to a more interesting spot. I, I find... I find when I play defensive armies, I do exactly what you just said. I try to come up with a strategy that's agnostic of my opponent. You know, my secondaries are something I can score kind of regardless of whatever that what you're doing. I'm not relying on you to give up bringing it down or no prisoners or something like that. Um, and I basically try to play my game 
like solitaire in a way where I'm just doing my thing, move blocking you, stalling you, keeping you from shutting me down. And in theory, if I can pull that off over the course of the game, I'll finish with like 80, 90, 100 points. And then whatever it is that you've been doing, hopefully is less than what I've been doing. And to me, it sounds like your aggressive style, as we're calling it, is more or less doing the same thing, but a little bit more proactively in how you approach it. Like you, I like to put people in a position where I start off by winning the game and then it's up to them to do something about it. And I try to make that as hard as possible. You take your, your, in this example, big custodies bricks, push them on the three out of five objectives and say, I'm winning the game. It's up to you to go do something about it. And it's in that moment where the onus on you is falls onto your opponent to stop you from beating them passively that's where you can kind of force them between a rock and a hard place. They come at you, they die one way, they stay away from you, they die slowly, or lose slowly, I should say. Is that what you mean by forcing mistakes? Yeah, so that's kind of like the more macro of it. But like I said before, I think that the micro of it is where I think um, I really love the game and also where I think I I excel at, to be perfectly honest. I think it's something that I've gotten down pat over a a number of years now. So like, for example, um, I'm going to always try like with those big custody bricks or the Thousand Suns or the Scarabs or whatever to make sure that Scarabs are always posturing, always trying to charge things that people don't want you to charge and just in general making people make hard decisions. I mean, I I do take the point that from a decision-making perspective, it's it would be um like close i guess to like what what you're describing as defensive play but perhaps with a more proactive element i guess for me um maybe i've always done it with armies that could be described as aggressive which is why like maybe the nomenculture is a little bit different yeah i don't know that that's a good point you could probably put a different name on it whether you call it aggressive or defensive um i always call it aggressive purely because um it's about like i guess taking the table and you force those mistakes by sometimes being like an immovable brick or being unkillable for perhaps a turn if you pop a bunch of cp and so it's felt aggressive um but yeah you know you you raised a good point It, it is actually it does have similar hallmarks to defensive play i guess the big difference for me is the tools that I bring to the table to do it. So when I say like aggressive, I'm completely capable with 20 wardens of running into a Tau army, picking up a thousand points and then getting locked in combat and shutting down the game in a turn. And I think that most armies that are described as defensive probably don't have that capability, but have more inbuilt safety built in, like redundancy and MSU and things like that. Yeah, I think that's a great distinction between the two styles as well. Uh, for your specific list, let's let's just get into it because we're we're kind of beating around the bush at this point. You dominated Adelaide with this aggressive board control army. What was it, just top to bottom? Um, so the advantage of a custodies army is that it's very brief to to. So it's good to transport, but also it's very brief to talk about. Um, so it was a single Ox of Omens detachment um, with the elite compulsory slot being the one that I selected. It's got. Um, Trajan Valoris, who hereafter I will refer to as Trashcan, um, he had uh, his two Warlord traits. I then had a Shield Captain on a Dawn, Dawn Eagle bike. He had the Tip of the Spear upgrade, which gives him reroll hits and wounds of one. He had no Relics and no Warlord traits whatsoever. I had a Vexilus Praetor, the Banner Boy, who was in the Alaris Terminator armor, um, which was very relevant. Uh, I'll talk about that a bit later. He had the Magnifica Banner, standard, the dense cover, neg one to hit and shooting banner. 
but he had a warlord trait and a relic. Uh, the relic he had was Castellan's Mark, which is redeploy uh, two units. And then the warlord trait he had was Sally Forth, uh, which is the warlord trait for the Solar Watch, which if I didn't mention that is the shield host that I took, um, which is a bit different to the vast majority of other lists, which from what I've seen tend to be either Emperor's Chosen or Shadow Keepers for the, for the vast majority of things. Um, to round out the other thousand points of the army, uh, with two units of Custody Wardens, um, they're each 10-man. All 10 have Guardian Spears and Misericordies, which are free. Um, so 20 Custody Wardens and two big blobs of, blobs of 10. I then had five Alaris Custodians broken up into a single unit of three and then two units of one model. And then I had a Rhino. Uh, and typically inside the Rhino, we were running Alea, who was my last HQ choice. She's the Sister of Silence character. And then five Witch Seekers, who are the Flamer Sisters. Um Rounds out for anyone who is particularly focused on details. It is 2,000 points on the nose. All the squads are the same size. It's also 100 power level, exactly. Um, 2,000. So, right there. <laughs> Games Workshop should be proud. <laughs> I'm I, Honestly, my list construction, which is sometimes problematic as I'm very OCD when it comes to like list construction, I absolutely cannot deal with like having a 10-man unit and a 9-man unit. Can't oh, do it. I just can't. I cut all those corners. I'm like, a 9-man is like the same thing as a 10-man. Let's just do that. No, I'm the, I'm the exact opposite to you there nick i just can't do it sometimes i make genuine mistakes purely because i must have symmetrically sized units oh my god does 1997 bother you would that like require oh some list rewriting oh man when when i submitted my oh i think it was my wsc list it was like 1995 points and I literally could not find anything to make it 2,000 points. There was nothing that I could upgrade. And I, I used to like literally sit at home and be like, it's okay. It's for singles. It's not for teams. It's fine. And like, <laughs> Wasted value. It's okay, Liam. You... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Liam, that actually kind of brings me to my one of my questions I didn't get a chance to ask earlier. You are a doctor in real life. Is that right? <laughs> That's correct, yeah. That explains some of the OCD-ness, I imagine. But... Um, how do you balance being such a high-level competitive Warhammer player and on so many different teams that you're a part of? Because Team 40K is so much more time-consuming, working with the other people, communicating and all that, than Singles 40K, while balancing a professional career. I'm sure that's the thing a lot of players struggle with. Yeah, um, I think that I've been very, very fortunate in what I do in that. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a medical doctor here in Brisbane, and um, I'm specializing to become a psychiatrist. And one of the things that has been really fortunate in what I do is that even though I do a lot of on-call work as in the, um, you know, uh, mental health emergency department and overnights and things like that, um, it has also been a job that's been very understanding in terms of leave. Um, and it is a job that also like promotes the mental health of the staff as well, like that they encourage you to, to use your leave. And um, like whenever I want to take a long weekend to go to a 40K event, I've pretty much never struggled to take that leave. I've been very, very fortunate in that fact. Um, I think like like everything for me, I do it in bursts, like pretty intensive bursts where, um, you know, like, for example, this weekend, uh, yesterday, I basically spent all of yesterday playing 40K. And then today I am I like won't think about it at all. I won't do anything. And I probably won't do any 40K until next weekend either. But when I do do something, I'm going to do it for like an intense amount of time, like 12 hours. I'm going to play like three, four games, talk with people for like half a day, and then I'll put it down. 
for a little while. And so I think the the key to the key to I guess balancing some of those things for me is that making sure that when, when I actually spend some time doing something, it's valuable time. Like I'm not going to spend 20 minutes writing a list while I'm on the toilet um, because for me then I feel like I had some ideas and I'm going to forget half of my own ideas. I sort of allocate time and think about something intensely for a period of time and then move on to something else. That's some great time management. I need to take a page out of your book on that. <laughs> <laughs> for real my, my phone like, calendar so is really intense <laughs> yeah okay mine has like three things on it <laughs> um awesome Liam. i'm very excited to get into how your list actually worked we're trying a bit of a format difference here uh, in part one like we just covered we talked a lot about you as a player how you approach the game and i found that discussion really informative and interesting i hope the audience does too for those of you who are joining us in part two, you can join us on AOW40K.com. It's for subscribers only. That's where we're going to get into the real nitty gritty. Liam and I are going to break down exactly why he took this custodies list specifically in the new Arcs of Omen meta to the largest singles tournament in Australia and bring home the W. We're going to break down his tactics, his approach to different matchups, the overall strategy for the list, and what's next for Liam. So stay tuned, everybody, and we'll catch you later. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com.